Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, June 6, 2021. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and the moderator for this meeting. The share ID numbers for Friday, June the 4th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,079. That's 17079. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,080. That's 17080. This morning, A Vision for You presents, We Let God Mold Our Ideals. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating and bring about recovery. The big book teaches that To get over drinking, or for us compulsive overeating, will require a transformation of thought and attitude. God makes this possible. We have embarked upon a program of action that will root out the causes of our living problems in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Old ideas, beliefs, and attitudes that govern how we act are cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions, motives, and ideals begin to dominate us. The 12-step process helps us acknowledge and discard our old attitudes and behaviors and move toward a new and healthier life. We move away from selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-seeking. God's power and love creates in us an internal change. The changes that take place in our lives as a result of the 12 steps require a cooperative effort. God provides direction. We contribute the willingness to take the actions required. God never forces himself on us. We must invite him into our lives. We let God mold our ideals. Our job is to respond to God's leadership in our journey. God is reshaping us. We let God be in control, and we learn to trust him more completely. We are beginning a process of living a life of humility, honesty, courage, and integrity. The result is freedom, happiness, and serenity. We choose to make God's goal our goal, God's plan our plan, God's values our values. 
Joining us today to elaborate on this very topic is Melissa C., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from New York. Melissa is dedicated to trudging the path of the 12 steps and carrying the message of recovery to those who still suffer. And it's with great appreciation and delight, always delight, to welcome Melissa C. to the line. Good morning, Melissa. Hey, good morning, Leah. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a beautiful introduction, and I just want to thank you for your um, endless service to this beautiful meeting. Um, yeah, so um, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York, and, um, you know, my, my, my backstory, right, like what brought me to these, uh, to these rooms, to needing a new set of ideals, was... Um, you know, a, a crushing, crushing um, powerlessness um, disease, right? I was crushed by my inability to take in the right amount of food. Like so basic, a human basic function escaped me. And I couldn't do anything about it. I had awesome information. I had a really strong desire and I had incredible willpower in many other areas, and I could do nothing about this problem, right? I just could not seem to take my knowledge, my desires, and my own human power and apply that where food and eating and diets and weight was concerned. And that crushed me, and it brought me here, right? So, um, so I'm going to talk about um, ideals today. Um, and... Basically, these are, you know, the relationship ideals. These are the ideals. Now, they're not Melissa C.'s ideals, um, although I hope that they are, right? That's my goal. But I didn't create them. Every one of these ideals um, are found in the big book, which for me was the pathway that led me right to God. So I assume that if it says it in this book, um, I believe this book was divinely inspired. And um, so I think if if I can find out what the big book tells me about ideals, um, that I'm going to believe that that's that 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 it's coming from from my God that I'm supposed to live in agreement with these ideals. So, first of all, what are ideals? And um, you know, like, doesn't an ideal have something to do with perfection, right? And the impossible, the unattainable. Am I really supposed to become perfect? Right? Isn't perfectionism a flaw? Like, isn't that a big flaw? You know, and, and in the um, AA 12 and 12 on page 68, it answers this question. It says, many will at once ask, how can we accept the entire implication of step six? Why, that is perfection. This sounds like a hard question, but practically speaking, it isn't. Only step one where we made the 100% admission we were powerless over alcohol, only that step can be practiced with absolute perfection. The remaining 11 steps state perfect ideals. They are goals towards which we look and the measuring sticks by which we estimate our progress. The only urgent is that we make a beginning and keep trying. And so like Leah had said in the intro, this is about cooperation. This is about cooperating, allowing ourselves to be molded. You know, and so while I don't always live in agreement with my ideals, it's the target that I aim for. I'm imperfect, 
but I seek perfection. And I'm directed to grow along spiritual lines. You know, in the doctor's opinion, um, on XXVIII, it says, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives, right? And so if you're like me, unable, you know, to take in the right amount of food, right, for a human being to function well, um, you need, I needed my life to be recreated. Um, And the doctor, you know, the doctor's opinion has a lot to say about food and alcohol and allergy. And, And that's no doubt super important information, but there's a lot more in this chapter, you know, or, or pre-chapter. You know, in the doctor's opinion, I also found out that food was never my real problem. My actual problem was a problem I had with living. I had ideals that were grounded in me. You know, I had a personality disorder. And, like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> like, I had a personality disorder. Like, you know, um... You know, well, yeah, I was here because I required a personality change sufficient enough to bring about recovery from compulsive eating. That tells me that I had a, a disordered personality. My personality was bringing me to ruin, and I needed my life to be created. I needed my ideals to be grounded in something that was bigger than me, right? So in Bill's story, you know, it becomes and sees um, – Bill, right? And Bill sees this evidence of someone who's got ideals grounded in something bigger than himself. And, and the, you know, it says, I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped new soil. And so, like, what does that mean? You know, like, I read that passage, and I think, what does that mean? And what I think it is is that my roots, you know, those are the things that are keeping me in place, like supported and nourished. And my old soil, right, was soil that was polluted and corrupted. My roots were being fed and supported by fear, by selfishness, by getting what I want, and by by operating my life on how I felt. Everything was, everything had to go through the filter of my feelings. And so what's the new soil? You know, my new soil, well, it's soil that's actually able to support me, you know, and it's soil that is is really from my loving creator, and it's a new set of spiritual principles. Um, And there's a solution on page 19 through 20. It says, of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters, medical, psychiatric, social, and religious We are aware that these matters are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lover of checklists and, and lists in general. And so, um, 
you know, part of discovering what are my ideals is I, I have to go through and list, like, what are they? Um, you know, and so, okay, so we started off that whatever it is, it's going to be grounded in God, right? Whatever my ideals are going to be, they're going to be grounded in God. But now that, what I just read, tells me that, um, well, uh, my ideal as an ex-problem eater is, one, I have to avoid controversy, right? That's what it told me, that that's the ideal. Two, I'm not contentious or argumentative. Three, to be tolerant of others' shortcomings. Four, respectful of others' viewpoints and opinions. Five, useful to others. And six, constantly thinking how we can meet their needs. So, like, what does that mean, right, if I'm, molding, if I'm allowing God to mold my ideals? Well, I don't jump into political arguments or workplace drama. Like, I'm not jumping on the bandwagon when people have disputes. I, I'm, to, I'm supposed to seek to be a peacemaker. You know, I let the rumor die with me. When family members are fired up over something, and I'm, by the way, I'm part of a very big opinionated family. Um, and, and I'm opinionated too. I have a lot of opinions. But if I'm living in agreement with my ideals, when there's controversy, I'm to stay quiet or positive. If I can't stay positive, then I need to stay quiet. And, you know, what I, what I found is the people I love are imperfect, right? They make mistakes. And um, when my ideals are grounded in me, I have an incredibly analytical eagle eye, and I find others' mistakes. And when I say, like, I can see other people's mistakes like neon signs, like demanding that they're pointed out, you know, like like problem here, issue here. And I think, okay, I'm supposed to change them or I'm supposed to talk about it with others. Um, but that's clearly not tolerant of their shortcomings. So, you know, like, why can't I talk about my mother-in-law with my husband, right? My husband got upset with his mom yesterday. And when he tells me something that his mom said that bothered him, why can't I add some more to the discussion, right? Well, first of all, it's not respectful of my mother-in-law, right, for starters. Not respectful of her views, her perspective, and it's not useful, right? It's not useful to her or to my husband. Like, that's not an ideal grounded in God. It, it's truly much kinder towards him to not agree, right, to stay quiet. And because, after all, it's his mother, right? And when God molds my ideals, I believe God wants sons and mothers to love one another and have peaceful relationships. And if my ideals are grounded in myself, then I use those moments to trash talk a family member as a way of getting closer to my husband. And I've done that in the past, right? And, and I had someone explain to me once that when I do that, when I talk about one family member to another to feel closer, it's, it's called cheap intimacy. I'm actually using other people as a means for getting intimate with someone. So why can't I point out, you know, and here's like another thing, why can't I point out to colleagues the things that are wrong with the administration, you know, um, or our employers or the education department at large because it sours morale and it pollutes the workplace. And rather than criticize, I'm supposed to look for how I can be helpful and useful. And what strikes me from that passage is the word constantly, right? So this is constant. It's like not occasional, not frequent, 
but actually constant. And, um, you know, to me, this is good use of the will. Like, this is where I'm supposed to exercise some willpower. You know, we're not, by the way, um, we're not promised more leisure time to pursue our interests and desires. Like, my ideals aren't to be shaped around me and my desires. I'm actually supposed to constantly think of other people. Um, so now let, like, now if we can look at some other characteristics that can help me shape my ideal. Um, I love, like, in Dr. Bob's Nightmare on page 180, it says, um, it's a most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse which which I was afflicted. Okay, agreed. That is a wonderful blessing. My health is good, and I've regained self-respect and the respect of my colleagues. My home life is ideal, and my business is as good as can be expected in these uncertain times. And, I, you know, I kind of smile when I read about um, these uncertain times. I guess there are always going to be uncertain times, right? It's like that's a constant um, you know, and so, like, what does Dr. Bob have to offer about an ideal? And, you know, if you really read his story, um, we find out in it, like, what attracted him and his wife to the people in the Oxford group. And then we can learn something about what he saw as, as an ideal. And, you know, there's a, there's a part where he talks about he was doing this beer experiment, right? I guess he was trying to determine if he could drink beer. And he was thrown in with a crowd of people who attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. They spoke with great freedom from embarrassment, which I could never do, and they seemed very much at ease on all occasions and appeared very healthy. More than these attributes, they seemed to be happy, right? So so it was clear that he saw it. What he saw as ideal was poise, health, happiness, freedom from embarrassment, at ease on all occasions. And I say that if I'm demonstrating those things, if I feel those things or I see those things, those are the byproducts of living in agreement with God's will. You know, and, and so, like, what's poise, right? It means, like, you're comfortable in your own skin, and and I look at people who have poise, and they, they can learn from their mistakes. They apologize if necessary. They just kind of move forward. They look people in the eye. They exhibit humility and confidence. You know, they hold their heads up. They're not cocky. They're not arrogant. You know, a poised person doesn't lose their cool. They're patient. You know, I say, like, someone who's poised, I look at them, they're lifelong learners, and they continue to grow and accept new ideas and perspectives. And so when I'm creating my ideals, I want to live with poise. Like, I like that, you know. And it makes me think of the men and women that I've met in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, the ones who've done such a good job of carrying the message to me. They drew me in, right, because they were bright-eyed. They were quiet. They were sane. They weren't evangelists. They weren't reformers. But they were clearly practicing these principles. I could see it in them. You know, and, and after our fifth step, too, we begin to get some of the qualities a poised person has. You know, I can, by the way, I can easily recognize when I'm not exhibiting poise. Do I always exhibit poise? Of course not. You know, um, sometimes, like, I come home after work. Here's an example. 
come home and none of the things that I asked my kids in the morning to do were done, right? I come, I leave them with a list of things to do, and I come home and they're not done, and I don't respond in a very poised, quiet, sane way. Like, I definitely I act like a reformer. I'm going to reform them, and I lose my cool, right? And, and it's not a pretty moment, you know? And by the way, the thing that I was looking for I didn't actually get, right? I was looking in the first place. I wanted uh, a calm and happy home. And if I'm throwing a temper tantrum, like I'm banging the pots and pans and washing the dishes loudly, grumbling and carrying on, well, I'm not living in agreement with my ideals as a wife and a mom, right? Okay, so now in How It Works, um, on page 69, it says, we do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? We reviewed our conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. So, you know, um, I know this is talking about sex conduct, but we can talk about this with any of our problems. I can't, I can't be selfish, right? That's what this tells me, meaning we have to think of others first. Uh, I can't be dishonest, right? That's pretty clear. What does that mean? I have to be truthful. I have to be honest. Um, and I can't be inconsiderate, right? I have to be considerate. And we review the way we behave, and our new ideal can't arouse jealousy, Right? So I don't I can't brag or discuss things that you know another person is longing for. If you're not arousing jealousy, you're you're showing compassion, you're compassionate. Um, you know, to make people suspicious, right? I can't do that. So I'm I shouldn't do things that would encourage people to not trust me. Basically, being untrustworthy makes people suspicious. If you're dishonest, two faced, right? That makes people suspicious of you. I would say if you talk poorly about one person to another, you're, um, you're increasing suspicion because I know for a fact that someone who gossips about someone else to me is more than likely gossiping uh, possibly about me as well. So I can't do those things. Um, I'm supposed to encourage trust in people. I'm supposed to encourage everybody to sort of trust one another, um, cause bitterness, right? making people angry and disappointed because they're treated unfairly. And so, yeah, I'm not supposed to cause bitterness. I'm supposed to encourage delight and warmth. That's really the opposite. Um, you know, <clears throat> in, in my relationships, I'm compassionate. I'm honest and fair. Those are God's ideals. Um, on page 69 in paragraph 2, it says, In this way we try to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected every relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? So in every relationship, and I'm just going to be really clear. I'm not going to start discussing the, you know, the, the details of my sex ideals. First of all, it's not in agreement with my ideals to, to talk about something so personal um, of that nature in, in, a, in a form like this that would be recorded. You know, that, that's my perspective as well. Um, 
but but what I am told here is in every relationship, right? Mom, wife, employee, colleague, neighbor, sponsor, right, etc. I cannot be selfish. You know, and now in our way of life, um, you know, in this program, I learned selfish isn't just wanting more than my fair share, like in that old sense of the word. That's what I thought selfish was, like if I wanted more. And sometimes, by the way, sometimes I am that, just like that. But selfish also means uh, wanting others to follow my script, you know, wanting to be the director, things like in my head, if I have things like they should dot, 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 right? That's selfishness. Um, Not seeing others' point of view, you know, believing that my perspective is a fact and not a perspective. Um, Wanting things my way, wanting special treatment, too concerned with me, like, and that comes in the form sometimes of even worried what others are thinking about me. That's selfish, right? I'm thinking about me. Um, and wanting to look good or be liked, right? Those are those are uh, definitions of selfishness. So we ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. We remembered always that our powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. So I see, what I see here is that all of our attractive powers and talents and gifts are God-given, right? Um, it may be intelligence, it may be artistic gifts, people skills, right? Athletic abilities, etc. Anything that makes us special is God-given and therefore good and not to be used lightly or selfishly, right? Not for self-promotion. God will use these gifts and we must allow him to mold us and you know, I think of one of the most amazing things is how so many of my troubling characteristics has become reshaped into ones that are beneficial if they're put to good use. You know, um, in step three, we turn our will and our lives over to God. And in step seven, we give him everything good and bad. And, you know, and my own experience was, you know, one of my um one of the problems that I was always told growing up was that I had a lot to say. Like I was always told, shh, I got like, shh, a lot, um, that I talked too much. And, um, yeah, okay, I talk too much. And But um, if, if I use it for beneficial purposes, um, you know, um, it's not always a defect. Sometimes, sometimes it grows into an asset if I allow God to mold it. Right, if it's not for selfish means. Um, page 69, the third paragraph, whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we've done harm, provided we do not bring still more harm in doing so. So at this point, right, when you're form, when you're allowing God to form your ideals, um, the food's down. And it's been down for a good chunk of time usually. You have a clear idea of what our defects are, you know, I did, or at least what our grosser handicaps are. And we begin to feel more and more God-directed. And around this time, we start getting more aware when we're not a living in agreement with God's, you know, direction, with with our moral code. And this, I think, is God shaping my ideals. You know, 
nobody should specifically tell you what your ideals are, but we know them. You know, they've always been there. It's it's the quiet voice inside that we've always heard. You know, um, it's it's the voice I get to hear when food is no longer the demanding voice, right? When food is is quiet and out of the picture, I can actually hear this voice. And you know, I look, I I like, I teach second grade. I share that all the time. My second graders actually have that quiet voice inside their head too. And I can tell. I look at them. They get a funny look on their faces when they're not doing what they know is right. And it's not always because they fear the teacher's consequences. It's not because they fear getting in trouble, always. But I believe that's the quiet voice of God, you know, and, and we can call it the conscience, you know. Uh, we get awoken to that conscience inside of us, you know. And now everyone's is different, but whatever ours turns out to be, we're supposed to be willing to grow towards it. And when I don't live in agreement with my ideals, I make amends, you know, and it's not just saying I'm sorry, but amend the behavior, fix it, do it differently. And and I say, like, remember that willing doesn't mean wanting, but it means I do it anyway, right? So in other words, it goes on to say we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. God alone can judge our sex situation. I'm laughing because sometimes it's like, I don't want the right answer. I want my answer. Um, I'm supposed to divorce myself from that kind of thinking. I'm supposed to really want God's answer. God's answer is best. God knows best, you know. And it goes on to say that counsel with persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. So that gives me some more information about my ideals. First of all, I'm going to treat all of my problems the same way. And I think that's amazing news. Like, I don't need to have a different set of directions for different problems. It's kind of like a one-size-fits-all. You know, when I have a problem, like, yeah, I ask God what to do. I seek counsel with another person, like someone who whose recovery I, I value and trust. Um, but I let God be the final judge, you know, not people. And what this also tells me is that I'm not the judge. I'm, I'm not to pass judgment on others. You know, that's God's job. And what do I avoid? Hysterical thinking and hysterical advice, both receiving it and giving it to. You know, on page 70, it says, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and on our motives. If we're sorry for what we've done and we have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven. And we will have learned our lesson. And if we're not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we're quite sure to drink. We're not theorizing. These are facts out of experience. So, okay, if I make a mistake, right, if I don't live according to my God-molded ideals, am I going to go right back to eating? You know, well, I have to check my motives. Um, Am I really sorry? And do I want to do better? Or am I hoping to get away with it? Right, 
I can't deliberately hurt someone and expect to stay abstinent, right? If I deliberately cause someone harm, um, even if I think they deserve it. Remember, I'm not the judge. That's not up to me to give out what people deserve. Um, you know, I want to get back to that situation where I come home um, and none of the household chores are done because I think it's one that a lot of people can relate to. Um, now, by the way, I was technically right, you know, um, because uh, they didn't do what I had asked, right? Um, but I actually had to make amends for coming into the house like a lunatic, you know, for, for causing um, – for causing harm. My my demeanor causes harm. And, you know, and I did, right? And and I know that if I don't make an amend right away, I'm risking my recovery. Like, if I believe that I am justified in my self-righteous indignation, um, I'm risking my recovery and I'm risking my life, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, what I say is like... Um, you know, I, for me personally, this was life or death. You know, getting a transformation was life or death. I I was over 300 pounds when I came in. I had dangerously high blood pressure, um, you know, sleep apnea. I was warned by my doctors that I wasn't going to make it out of my 40s. That That's, this was life or death. And, and by the way, if yours wasn't that crushing, I was dead to the day. Every day that I ate compulsively, I was dead for that very day. So if I believe that I'm justified in coming home and throwing a tantrum because the house isn't to my liking. And by the way, I'm not talking like um, perfection here. I have a messy house most of the time. Um, So I'm right. You know, by God, I'm right. But I'm saying, you know, that the clean house I long for is worth dying over. That's crazy. I'm also told in the big book that that's the definition of insanity, lacking proportion, inability to think straight. You know, if I lack proportion, it means that I place the importance of one thing that's far less important over something that's far more important. Basically, this is saying... I'm my having a clean kitchen is worth dying over. Um and I know that's ridiculous. You know, another thing that I cannot absolutely cannot do if I plan on staying recovered and protected, I can't lie. You know, why? Well, I have a friend that says, um my friend Janet says that if we lie, it's like we put a do not enter sign on our foreheads telling God to keep out. And and for me, I think it like this. When I lie, what I'm saying to God is I don't trust you. I know better. I'm the employer, and you work for me. You know, lies basically tell God, I don't need your help today. No help required. I got it. You know, and I think about God um, as the most skillful teacher. Um, You know, you can tell I love education. I love teaching. God is the best teacher with a perfect lesson plan that's differentiated just for each of us. He's got an exact learning plan for someone with my learning difficulties. And when I lie, I'm saying to God, I don't need to learn anything today. Not interested in your lesson. And God, being a wonderful teacher, doesn't cram it down my throat. He lets me decide for myself. You know, if I'm not interested in learning, okay, he's not going to instruct me. That's called free will. 
you know, page 70, paragraph 2, it says, to sum up sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. And this takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge, right, that craving, the impulse, the hunger. When to yield would mean heartache. So in all my relationships, I pray for the right model. I pray for help and clarity when I'm unsure and confused. I pray, pray for rational and stable thinking and for the strength, right? I ask for God's power to do what's right. And if the situation is difficult, right, meaning either I don't know what to do or the temptation is too great to cause trouble, then I throw myself into being of service, right? I focus on someone else's needs and I make this my project. I have to get out of myself. So I find like for myself, right, um, sometimes it's too tempting or it's too difficult for me to kind of know what to do with, with my kids and my family. Um, and if the situation is too difficult and overly tempting, um, you know, I'm in luck because there's other people who like what I, who like what I have to say or who want to hear what I have to say or who I can be useful to. And I can, I can go be helpful in that area. And I can kind of leave my kids alone for a minute, <laughs> not really leaving them alone. They're, they're teenagers or young adults. But I can sort of get out of their business for a moment and focus elsewhere until God helps clear me up. You know, God, God sort of like gives me a, a new perspective, um, gives me the ability to, um, to know what he wants and, um, and to act in agreement with it. You know, in How It Works on page 66, it says, if we're to live... We have to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. And that's a phrase I turn to a lot because it reminds me that as an ex-problem eater, I have a very unique set of directions, and it's very different from the directions that normal people have. Like, I can't defend and support my side and my position. In fact, I am actually told here I have to divorce myself, separate, disconnect, turn away, abandon, distance, split, detach. Like, I have a list of synonyms because I need them from that kind of thinking, right? Um, you know, and so in in the chapter into action, page 83, it says we should be sensible tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. So what this tells me is that part of my ideals, I might be putting other people's needs ahead of my own, but ahead does mean that my needs will still be considered, just not first, right? And I, I say, like, I'm a child of my creator, and I do believe it's disrespectful to God to be putting myself in a position where I'm courting humiliation, pain, and abuse, right? We're not servile. We are of service to God, 
right? He directs who and how to help, but we're not at the beck and call to other people, not to sponsors, our sponsees, our families, our fellows, or to any other human being. Like I don't believe God relieved me, by the way, of the bondage of food, to be anyone's doormat, right? And and so my ideals, well, my ideals have to have healthy boundaries in there too, right? And those of us, you know, myself included, who have been people pleasers, well, I found out I'm actually not as kind as I believed I was. I always thought I was, I'm so kind, you know, I just want everyone, just want everyone to be happy. And actually what I found out was I was using people, right? I was I was not really concerned with their happiness and well-being. But I don't like the thought of someone not liking me or not being pleased by me. So the things that I do to make others feel good was actually a transaction. That's what it was. It was basically I'll buy myself a little comfort by making sure you're happy. And, you know, I also found out that's a pretty unkind thing to do, making someone else responsible for your happiness, you know. And I know, like, I grew up with this message, um, and it sounded really good, right? It was, oh, a mother can only be as happy as her least happiest child. And that sounds like, oh, sure, of course I can't be happy if my kid's happy. But I found out, and you could substitute kids, husband, you know, boss, whatever it is. Um, That's a burden. That's putting other people's in charge of my happiness. Now they're not only responsible for being happy themselves, but I'm making my happiness dependent on them. That's a burden. So, you know, if I get back, I'm going to get back to that housework example again, right? What do I do? Well, in a calm demeanor, right, I discussed with my family, like, what needed to be done calmly. I reminded them, you know, of the obligations that they have as family members, like like we're all part of this family together and everybody has to bring something to the table. Um, I was quiet. I was sane, basically poised, right? And it was more effective. Now, it also means that I might have to follow through on consequences if the things aren't done. And I may have, or I may have to get out of the way and let natural consequences occur and stand by and allow my kids to feel their own discomfort. You know, and that's a hard one too. You know, like if, if, like if my kid isn't doing well in a class and I'm carrying on and screaming and yelling and throwing a fit, um, sometimes I just, I have to remove myself and say, you know what? Well, their grades are not a reflection of me as a human being and as a mother because, you know, um, they're their own grades, they're their own successes, um, and there might be no consequences, you know, and there's, and I'm going to sometimes have to get out of the way and let those occur. And I'm going to trust God, you know, that if there's pain involved, well, you know, God's in charge there. Um, on page 84, it says our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness, you know. And in the St. Francis prayer, you know, which is sometimes we call it the 11-step prayer, I'm told my function, you know, my job is to be understanding, not understood, helpful, useful, valuable, you know. 
Um, and then it goes on to say love and tolerance of others is our code. So that's my idea. You know, and it's like my favorite line of all, love and tolerance, my code, my code, my policy, it's my protocol. It's like in the business of me, it's my SOP, you know, my standard operating procedure. Um, you know, and, and so if you notice, like our code is not justice and fairness. It's not right and wrong, right? I'm, I'm told it's love and tolerance. I need to have tolerance of others. But more than that, I need to tolerate, like build up my sensitivity, almost like people build up a, like a resistance to certain medications, right? Um, I get a little thicker skinned to my own discomfort. Um, I'm not like thrown as much when, um, when people do what they do, you know, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm supposed to seek. Like, you know, like to wear life like a loose garment. Um, we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, right? And then it says on page 67, um, we avoid retaliation or argument. We take a kindly and tolerant view. So I don't fight. In my ideals, I don't get people back. I don't go back and forth with others. You know, and for me, like a great way that I can demonstrate this um, is um, in Facebook, and it's going to be like really silly, but um, I've removed myself from any chatter that's argumentative, you know, or retaliatory in nature. Um, I have principles, I have ideals, and what I found out is nothing, by the way, nothing ever got solved on Facebook. So if, if for myself, I could not get involved in political debate and idealistic chatter um, on on social media, and it was so tempting because I could I could wrap myself up in what I believe is right and wrong, and have a great fight. And the sad thing that I've seen happen is I've seen family members, people who love each other, call each other horrendous things in a public forum. And I, I fell there, too. And I know that's not an agreement with God's ideals. There's no way that God wants me to, like, you know, dig into my sister and her beliefs or my brother-in-law. And anybody's, you know, what do I do for me? Well, if I, if I can't avoid temptation in this area, it's really simple. I just hide all political posts from me, and, and then and I stay off, right? You know, um, in the chapter to wives, it says, page 118, we women carry with us a picture of the ideal man, the sort of chap we would like our husbands to be. It is the most natural thing in the world, once his liquor problem is solved, to feel that he will now measure up to that cherished vision. The chances are he will not, for, like yourself, he's just beginning his development. Be patient. So what am I told here? Um, now that I'm living free from the food, you know, I'm that man, right, that, that one that's being spoken about. Um, and just because I'm doing better, right, um, because I'm living free from the food, I can't expect perfection in my home, perfection in myself, just because I'm, I'm doing better. With my loved ones, I need to be patient as well as with myself. I have to remember that these are ideals. They're the perfect model. 
and although I can strive for the target, I often miss the mark. And with that, I will pass. Thank you so much, Melissa, for this beautiful presentation this morning. So thought-provoking and inspiring. Greatly appreciated. The share ID for this morning's presentation is 17,091. That's 17091. Melissa's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to a question-answer segment. You can pose a question, questions only, please, to Melissa by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Yvonne. Hi, this is Jeannie. Sarah R. from New York. Jeannie S. Florida. Gotcha. I have Yvonne, Jeannie. Sarah R. Sarah R. Anyone else? Okay, well, let's get started with Yvonne's question. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for your talk. I really got a lot out of it. I just have a I have a sponsee who has relapsed several times. How do you decide when it's in the best interest of your sponsee for you to drop them and tell them they need to uh, work with someone else? Okay. Um, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, well, you know, I, I love if we look at what, what they did with Jim. It says like they worked with him half a dozen times, each time going over exactly what happened. So, that's really my starting point with someone if they pick up. Like, we're gonna oh, we're gonna really go through it exactly what happened, you know, like, um, and try to find out where, you know, where they fell off because there are some real, very specific um, things that people do or fail to do that they, you know, were powerless. So if they're not um, working in agreement with obtaining God's power. Yeah, they're going to go back to the food. So, I would I would look at that with them. Um, generally, with a person, if they fail, you know, um, to take direction anymore, right? Like meaning, like we go over some things, we find out some directions that um, that I believe would be helpful that we that we find in the big book that would help them. And if they're unwilling to do those things. Then I, you know, then I would say, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I can't help you. I'm actually not allowed to, because you're not willing or you're not following my directions. And other times, you know, <clears throat> we just sort of reach a point where I think it's kind of mutual, where, for whatever reason, I'm not able to speak in a language that you're able to hear, you know, and apply, and, um, and perhaps your best, you know, to find someone. Who who's better able to help you? Um, I try to do it without without getting um, real worked up, you know, angry. Because I have to remember too, as as a, as someone, um, I'm powerless not only to my disease but certainly to someone else's. 
And if I find I'm getting, like, really upset and bothered by it, I might need a reminder of that um, myself. Thanks. I'll pass. Thank you, Yvonne. Uh, Jeannie, your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Jeannie S. from Florida. Can you hear me? I hear you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Melissa. I love the way you, uh, it was very helpful to me the way you took a lot of the information in the big book and gave us the concept, not just the words. It was really helpful. Um, I would like to ask, and I don't know if you feel prepared or comfortable to answer this, but I loved where you said <clears throat> when you're not honest, it's like putting a sign on, your friend said it's like putting a sign uh, to your higher power, do not enter. So, Mike, you know, I find, I'm not pretty, you know, cash register honesty, honesty with people, you know, I I do have trouble being honest about my feelings, but I guess my question is, well, I guess it's really twofold, maybe one part of it would be, I heard a speaker years ago say, I'll be honest with you just as soon as I could get it past me. So I think that where I struggle more with honesty, I'm not going to lie to somebody, but I might have trouble with being honest with myself and then also have trouble being honest with, with others when I'm in some sort of a difficult situation. So I'm just wondering how you would apply uh, what's in the big book to that. Thank you. Hi, sorry, I, I got muted. Um, okay, so as far as like um, being honest with ourselves, right? That's what we call that, like denial, right? And I know um, I've practiced that for years and years and years. It was like I'm like a sleeping giant. Sometimes it takes me a while to realize I don't like this or there's something here that that I'm supposed to do something about. And sometimes that's like a benefit. That's like God giving me um, space and time to really hear what his message is. But as far as, you know, being not being honest with people, oftentimes it's, well, it's, it's not, it's fear-based. It's I'm fearful of either they're not going to like me or, you know, like, so here's, here's an example, right? If, um, if I, if I, if I'm not truthful with um, someone, then they're going to have an opinion of me um, that I don't want them to have, right? And that is so self-centered because now I'm thinking, not only am I thinking what they're thinking, I'm in their brain worrying about their opinion, but um, but I'm going to reshape, I'm going to get in their brain and change, right, their thoughts based on me. And um, that's self-centered, you know, my, my, it's people worshiping. How's that? It's putting people in front of my connection with God. I'm, I'm, I really am directed to be honest without being cruel, right? So without knowing like the real specifics of where you're being dishonest, I'll just, I'll like give you like clear, like one example. Someone asks me to do something, um, and I'm not able to do it. And there's this part of me that's like, they're not going to like me. So I, I sort of like wait or, I, or I'll like finagle or I'll try to figure it out. And then, and then I realize, wait, I'm not being honest with myself. First of all, I don't have time or it's something that's been beyond me. It's something I'm not equipped to do. I don't have the skill set in doing it. Um, I have to trust God with the opinions of other people. So I would say like in all 
areas. And it really does tell us in the book. Like, there's there are things that are um, indispensable. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And um, and I have to trust God with, with the outcome. Like, when I'm dishonest... I'm I'm putting myself in the outcomes business. I'm I'm giving God the script. I'm saying, here's here's the script. Here's what I'm going to have happen. And and I I was living on like the ends will justify the means. And that's not that's actually the opposite how I'm I'm supposed to live with my means, meaning my actions are the important thing. My day-to-day actions are the important thing, and the ends are best left in, in God's hands. Thanks. I'll pass. Thank you, Jeannie. Sarah R., your turn. Hey, are you able to hear me? Yes. Hey, everyone. Uh, this is Sarah R. from New York. Thank you so much. That was so great and so inspiring. Um Okay, so my question is, you spoke about so many amazing things. However, I, being I'm so new to the program and I'm actually following every single thing my sponsor tells me. However, I just, I keep relapsing that I'm, I'm, I'm doing the steps though. And so many of the things that you said is probably the cause for why it's happening. Um, so I'd love to hear more about specifically how can someone who's, you know, used to doing everything to avoid life on life's terms, someone who exactly as you said, um, my happiness is dependent on what other people do think or other people's happiness, I guess like codependency happiness um, and one thing that you said really stuck out, um, just about, um, being in your own right, like being in a good place. So how do I get to that? Someone new, someone coming in who does every, who has for the past 31 years, just done everything to avoid life on life's terms. Now that this food is down and now it's like, whoops, well, the reason I was using the food um, the comfort and all that that it brought, kind of like my best friend, like my true love and everything, that's gone. So if you can just, you know, give some experience, strength, and hope on that. Thank you so much. Okay. So I'm, I I heard a lot, but it was hard for me. It was hard for me to pick up your question because it sounded in the beginning like you were saying, like you're struggling to stay abstinent. Is that is that your truth? Is that what's happening? Or that's not no. that I heard it incorrectly. No. No, that is happening, oh. but I guess I guess the question okay. is No, no, so because, let's take that first. Let's take that okay. one first. Because these ideals, right? Of course we have to start practicing them as best we can from the start. But we start with really what we know, and that's basically honest, right? We're on, well, let's just start with what we'll just miss. And in the beginning, it's like, okay, I'm going to be honest with my sponsor, for starters, 100%. You know, the other, if life is getting you real tripped up and you're struggling to stay abstinent, I don't know how far you've been able to get in the steps and then pick up, or you like, but I'm, I'm like a big proponent of this hospitalization period where, you know, you put yourself in food rehab, in a sense, and, um, now, if you can't go to a rehab facility, no worries. You can create it at home. Like every single abstraction, you know, 
apart from like obviously you have children, you have to take care of your kids, you have to do some basic hygiene, basic things, but everything else, as much as possible, should be like pushed to the side temporarily, as if you were in rehab, and focus entirely on everything that's related to your recovery. You know, put up really tight parameters around you in the food. Like, you know, um, I've had people who've had to have all their food in a separate refrigerator, not forever, but for, for and to get clear, right? Have someone else do your food shopping, you know, order your groceries to be delivered, whatever it is, um, to really remain, like, steadfast, abstinent, and get busy working the steps. Your ability to, I found my ability to apply these ideals, I could never do it with food because my ideals were grounded in in a disease, right? It was it was grounded in in cookies and ice cream. Like that's what my roots were grasping. And first I had to put the food down entirely before I could before I really could um achieve these ideals, you know, or work towards them. So thanks. Thank you, Sarah R. Who else has a question this morning for Melissa? Star one to unmute. I didn't catch that name, please. Seneca T in Fort Worth. Gotcha, Seneca. Ginger C. Sandy. Ginger. Sandy, Sandy W. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? Julie D, UK. Judy D. Toby W. Toby W. Anyone else want to get in this lineup? Judith R. And Judith R. Okay. All right. Let's begin with Seneca T, followed by Ginger C. Hey, this is Seneca T in Fort Worth. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for your service. Um, uh, this is a question I'm, uh, I'm recovered for today, and I wanted to ask you, if you could remember back to where you first started getting clean off the food, um, where you considered yourself abstinent, what did, what were the characteristics of God for you, and what were the telltale signs in your life that you finally, it finally clicked for you? Pass. So, like, how did I first start feeling, like, the presence of God? Like, how did I know that I was recovering, recovered on my way? Um, I would say, like, things that once bothered me didn't seem to bother me the same way anymore. Like, I, you know, I have a memory of, um, I have a particular family member that I've struggled with for years. And um, I found myself, like, honestly, legitimately saying something kind about him. And I realized that was part of my amends work was that because I had, you know, uh, really ripped him apart too many times to family members, um, 
part of my amends was, well, I was not going to do that anymore. And I was going to look for his good and, and, and speak only positive words about him. And it went, there was a moment where it actually went from like, I was exert, that was good use of the will for a while. It was like I had to grit my teeth to do it. And then I found, I actually saw wonderful qualities in this person. And it was like, I, it was like, how did I overlook that about him? Like, this is all true. This was all here all along. He hadn't changed. He was always that way. Um, and I was finally able to see it. That was like, that was a big one. And, um, you know, and the other one was I was able to see, I had some people in my life who lovingly were food pushers. And they didn't mean any harm. They actually were trying to push good food on me, like what they believed was good food. Um, and <clears throat> one of them, my mother-in-law was like on a quest for years. She was gonna, She was going to figure out how to make me dessert. She was going to somehow utilize all my ingredients that I could eat and make me a dessert. And um, and it would really annoy me because I don't eat dessert. Leave me alone, you know. And I finally saw, like, she offered me something. And now while I didn't eat it, I actually saw, oh, my God, she's trying to love me. It was a hug. She just was hugging me with the wrong set of arms, ones that don't work for someone like me. And that those kind of instances you know, where I was able to, like, apply these principles to people that are in my life, that are close to me, and really see them, I think, the way that God sees them, you know? Um, Thanks. Good question. Thank you, Seneca. Ginger C., your turn. Hi, Leigh. Good morning, Melissa. Thank you so much for your share this morning. This is Ginger C., recovering in Colorado. And, Melissa, my question to you today... um, You know, I think as addicts, we have huge control issues. We're extremely codependent, and we have horrible self-hatred. And what I've just been experiencing with this relapse is the vitalness of boundaries. And you mentioned boundaries with food, and you may have parameters around that. But I'm just curious with here right now today with your work, what do your boundaries look like? You know, how are you clearly communicating what's okay and what's not okay? And how has that made a difference in your life? Oh, man, you asked the good question. <laughs> thank you. Thank, Ginger, first of all, um, thank you. I'm, really, I'm happy to hear recovering. That's a beautiful word. Um, I'm grateful to hear that from you. Um, and, um, yeah, um, it is a work in progress. It's especially easy. It's easier with certain people and harder with others. So, I have two incredible teachers in my life. One is my daughter and one is my mother. And what's happening currently is my daughter is 20 and she's at the point where um, I'm to be letting go. And it's painful, right? Because she's not doing things the way I want. And, and, I'm, and I'm fearful of the future. And sometimes, the, you know, the consequences of her actions seem to land on my shoulders. Um, and, um, I have to, like, I have to actually step to one side and let some of the consequences fall on her shoulders and trust God, right? I have to trust God with, with that. And I have to love her. You know, I realize, like, every conversation that I have with her cannot be about her future, cannot be about what she's not doing right, cannot be about, like, that it actually 
how about, you know, since we are on this trajectory where she is going to be at some point, maybe, maybe not, leaving at some point, right? How about I just love her while she's under my roof right now and not have my eye on all of her things? So one of the things that I did painfully was I had to have her um, remove my um, account. I no longer get the alerts when she's overdrawn on her checking account, right? That was like, how did that come about? Because I kept getting alerts and I would lose my mind. I would get pissed off and I would act in a, in a manner that wasn't poised, right? And then I realized, wait a second, this isn't my business. I don't belong here. So she's overdrawn, right? That's, I, don't know, I don't even know it. It's not my problem. And if she bounces checks and she gets in financial, I'm not going to bail. I love her. I will not bail her out for that. She's going to have to figure it out. Um, that's one. And then where my mother's concerned, my mother's on the other path. My mother is perhaps like going to need more, um, intervention and more help. And, um, and it's a work in progress. You know, all of these things are work in progress. My codependency, am I codependent? Yeah, I'm codependent. Um, but I, I saw it as transactional that their happiness was not as much, look, I love them. I want them to be happy, of course. But a lot of my codependency was I'm worshiping their happiness. Their happiness was my God. It was like it was what it was what I could not live without. And um, I have to trust that not everybody's going to be happy. Um, and, and that includes me. I'm not always going to be happy either. So I hope that helps. Okay. Thank you, Ginger. See, Sandy W., your turn. Oh, thank you, Leah. Thank you so much for your beautiful service always. And Melissa, wow, um, I got so much out of that, and I had to chuckle because of an issue I'm having with my mother-in-law. So I love the reminder of not being not gossiping to my husband about her. So thank you for that. But my question is actually unrelated to that. Um, I'm curious how you guide sponsees as to doing writing their um, ideals. When when I was sponsored. Um, I didn't do them until I was living in 10, 11, and 12, but I know in the big book it comes up in um, steps four and five. Um, so I'm just wondering how you guide your your sponsees. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I do it, well, after, you know, when they take their fifth step, we begin to see, like, um, all the ways that they're acting, all the ways that they're behaving that are keeping their defects like alive and well right and then in their step I do a lot of work with people in step six and seven so in step six you know um because it says you know now we'll look at step six in the book and some people say okay that's an hour that's but I I I, I do a little more I go a little more in depth with people with step six I use the AA 12 and 12 a lot with that and um what I do is we start writing out just like a food plan, I start working with people to develop like a behavior plan. That's in agreement with um, the ideals that, that, that we sort of have come up with, like living in agreement with how God wants us to be. Um, and, and we do some six, you know, some work around that. We start like putting it into practical terms, like just like I had a food plan. Like I couldn't ask God to remove 
Well, I did. I used to ask God to remove the fat, right, while I kept on eating. And then I asked God, well, please just make me stop needing to eat chocolate cake so much as I was buying chocolate cake and slicing it and, you know, and eating it, right? So I needed a food plan for my abstinence. I needed, right, I needed to, like, have a weight and measured food plan. I needed to go to the grocery store. I needed to buy the vegetables, cut them, you know, blah, 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 and eat in agreement that way so that God could remove right my 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 obsession to food my compulsion to overeat and i would say it's very similar with my step 6 and 7 work is that if i want god to remove these defects i kind of need a plan how am i going to behave first of all to demonstrate to god that i'm willing right and so for me it was simply as basic as um okay so when i'm at work and people, you know, come to my room to complain about the principal. What am I going to do? Like, what's my plan, right? And I, and I actually had to have it on paper, a plan. And then, so I know I'm answering your question really long about, but it is part of, and then we look at it with these ideals. And what I do is I give them a list of these ideals. They're, they're like what I went through with you guys. I have it on, on like a template, um, it's a checklist, basically, and if and if I'm doing all of those things, right, my ideals are grounded in a higher power, avoiding controversy, not argumentative, tolerant of shortcomings, respectful of viewpoints and opinions, useful, I'm showing poise, I'm exhibiting health, I'm freedom from embarrassment, at ease at all, vacation, you know, I list them all down for them, and then they take them at that point, um, and they... And they apply it, right? And and so I would do it with people after step five as they're working on step six and seven. Um, and then here's the thing, right? When you go to make an amends, it's or at least finding where you need to make amends, it's real easy because, well, it's not easy, but it's clear. How's that? It's clear because you're like, whoa, I have not been living in agreement with these ideals. I'm doing this, this, I owe an amend for that. I owe an amend for that. I, You know, so, thanks. I'll pass. Thanks, Sandy W. Judy D., your turn to ask a question. Hi, Julie, uh, food addict from the UK. Um, thank you so much for your service, and thank you, Melissa. I've taken so much, so, so much from um, what you've shared today. I'm new to program. Um, I haven't started working my steps yet, so really early for me. But I did put down the food a few months ago. So it certainly feels very ready for me. Um, my question is actually around how I start to understand the difference between, I guess, <laughs> ultimately the answer is my will and God's will, but the things I don't feel like doing, the, the people I don't feel like um, supporting or being of service to versus the need for not being at everyone's beck and call I think that was the phrase you used so how do you start to distinguish between that if there's any tips or advice for me tuning into that hope that makes sense yeah absolutely and I would I would say for me I could not just I could not distinguish the true from the false on my own I could not figure out who was I supposed to be helpful to who I wasn't and I couldn't figure out even what it meant to be helpful right I thought being helpful meant taking over 
um, or getting involved or ensuring that they were happy. Make sure they're happy. That's helpful. It's not. I say that, like, sarcastically. I would say, like, the food is down, work the steps. Like, that would be the first, that, because I couldn't see it, you know, um, I couldn't see it until I started working the steps. And step, you know, um, how do I know what God's will is? You know, when I don't, here's here's what I would say, right, in a, in a of course, I, I would really impress upon you to work the steps so that you could see it. But in a pinch, when I don't know what's God's will or my will, and I get quiet, right? First of all, I have to invite God's will in. I have to invite, I have to leave a space to hear what that is. God's will, what I found, is always loving. And if I'm not sure which I'm supposed to do, am I supposed to, like, throw a fit over this? Am I supposed to give the hard lesson? Am I supposed to, like, say my truth when the truth should be said, you know? Or am I supposed to err on love? If I can't figure out, I'm going to go with love. I'm going to go with the most loving action, with, of course, without harming myself, right? Because that wouldn't be love either. But if I can't figure it out, God's will is always, it's gentle, it's kind. More people receive benefit, you know, than less. And uh, But I would impre- impress upon you, work the steps. Yeah. Thanks. And I'll pass. Thank you. Toby W., your turn. Star one, ten mute. Thank you. Um, my name is Toby W. And I'm, I'm, um, I am so grateful. Um, Melissa, um, there's so much of what you said, like everybody else has said, that, that when you talked about love and tolerance is your code, and that's supposed to be my code as well. And I have a strong resentment towards somebody, and I'm having a very hard time having love and love and tolerance toward this person. Can you talk a little bit about how you might have overcome something like that? I'd appreciate it. Yep. <laughs> yep, just like you, right? Just like you. I've had people like that in my life. Um, I don't think we'd be human if we didn't. So we're really given very clear directions. We're to pray for them, right? Like, legitimately, not just do it lip service, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to pray for them. And, you know, one of the things that I've um, that I've done that's been really helpful for me, first of all, we're supposed to see them as, you know, as spiritually sick or spiritually unfinished, right? Um, I love... Um, I love this idea that their their spiritual um, maturity is developing. They're developing, you know, spiritually. And um, so if there's someone that I have a deep resentment towards, if I can picture them developing like a child, like a toddler, in their most harmless form of all, um, because I know for myself, like, a, a young child can do something, and we give them, like, we kind of give them a free pass because we know that they don't know better or they're, they're ill-equipped to do better. And I have, to, I have to start seeing people, if I'm struggling, if I can start seeing someone with that lens. And a visualization that I've done that I found really helpful, if I can get a picture of that person as a child, 
Um, and I've had the benefit because I had some resentments towards someone that I loved very much, but, but I was angry with this person over certain things. Um, I got a picture of them as a child, <laughs> and I would pray and meditate and ask God, you know, to help me to help me find a pocket of love for this person in my heart, to remove my, my self-righteous indignation, to see them as your child, as a child of God, that if, you know, unable to do better um, and, and offer me forgiveness. And, you know, it says, like, we pray for them every day for two weeks. And um, it works. I mean, it really works. Now, I have someone in my life that, um, it's kind of like uh, the resentment grows back if I don't consistently pray for this person. I don't know why, but it does. It's like someone that I come into contact with often. We have a long history together, and um, and it works. Like, it really does remove it, this practice. If I can see her like a child. If I could see her as someone who's just developing spiritually, uh, not finished yet. God is still working on her to see her with love. I ask God to increase my, um, inc- like, in- to decrease my sensitivity, to increase my ability to tolerate that which I find uncomfortable. What happens is it actually lessens over time. And when it comes back again, I'm supposed to seek, you know, I do it again. I start praying it again. So I would really encourage you if you're very, and here's the other thing, what not to do to not keep discussing it over and over and over, analyzing, dissecting, you know, because that's what I would do in the past. I would look at my reasons for resenting them, and we're actually supposed to divorce ourselves from that kind of thinking. Not be in denial of it, but divorce myself from that thinking. So I don't call 100 people to rediscuss what it is that I'm resentful of, even in the guise of looking for help, right? So, like, I don't call a 10-step, and I'm going to discuss the details of what someone did over and over and over again, because that actually, that harbors the resentment. It keeps it safe and alive. So, um, yeah, I would encourage not to do that and then to pray for, 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 pray for tolerance. Thanks. I'll pass. Thank you, Toby W., for the question. Judith R., your turn. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Melissa, so much. Um, Now that you're not worshiping the food, I'm curious how you worship your higher power, how you do Step 11, both the morning part and the evening part from the big book. Great. Yep. the directions I really I do it um I you know um I wake up in the morning I pray I start with prayer I have a prayer for everybody in my life especially the people um you know who um maybe I have resentment towards or who maybe I struggle with or whose happiness I've worshipped um I have a prayer for everything. I have a prayer for our country. I have a prayer for my school district. I have a prayer, for, you know, for social justice. I have a prayer for my husband, for my mother-in-law, for my mom, uh, for my kids. I start off with prayer. I meditate. Um, I have a love. I have a bunch of different meditations that I try. And um, I love, I can feel the nearness of my creator. 
in nature. I love, I'm sitting outside right now on my beautiful front porch, and I'm watching a bird at the feeder. I I look for um, evidence of the miraculous all around me. Um, I do a review, right? I have a, a, a nightly review. I have nightly review partners, people that I share my inventory with. Um, I write, um, you know, I journal, I read, I participate. I mean, like I, I, yeah, I really work. I follow the directions from the book. It tells me what to do all throughout the day. If I'm agitated and doubtful, I pause throughout the day. Um, so when things disturb me, I, I get quiet, you know, which is pretty funny because I've never really gotten quiet, but I've actually been able to get quiet. Um, and, um, you know, before I go to bed, I thank God for for all that God was able to do for me today. I ask to be, you know, I, I thank him for the opportunity to be useful. Uh, I thank him for another day of being, you know, sober, for for able to being loving, um, I yeah I write my review what I what I was able to do for the day. Um, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Judith R. for the question. Thanks to everybody for their questions this morning. And Melissa, thank you for such a rich and profound presentation this morning. Lots to give thought to and implement in our own worlds of recovery out there. Thank you very much. Share ID for today, 17,091. That's 17091. We're going to close from a chapter entitled A Vision for You, page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.